Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning, uh, continuing our series through the book of Ephesians. We've got three more weeks after this one, uh, so we've almost made it. Well done. Well done. Ephesians chapter 4 um, is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to start in verse 17, so if you want to find, there, find that in your Bible or on your phone or iPad, uh, whatever it is that you have with you this morning. Um, Paul's going to go after some application here, but he's going to do it in a very Paul way, and so we need to pay attention. Um, most of the time when, when I write a sermon or study and teach, what I like to do is I like to build until this point at the end where everything kind of comes together. This passage doesn't really afford that as much as Paul begins with the punchline and then he carries on from there. So we're going to be a little heavy towards the beginning. So kind of pay attention. Let that be the filter by which we read the rest of the passage. Uh, then we'll, we'll pray. We'll have a benediction, some response time, and then Daryl will, will send us out this morning. But it will be in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32 this morning. Tonight uh, at five o'clock is our prayer and worship night called Renewed, coming out of this very passage. We want to have our minds renewed, the spirit of our minds renewed. So tonight, just for an hour, we'll meet here in the auditorium uh, to worship through song, to worship through prayer. We're going to pray through the prayers of Paul in Ephesians tonight. I want to encourage you to be a part of it uh, this evening. I think it's going to be refreshing and renewing for us and really set our eyes where they need to be uh, today. So last night was Halloween. I don't know if you felt this way, but at our house, we felt like yesterday was three full days packed into one day. It just felt like three separate days happened. We had flag football in the morning for our boys, and then we had a couple hours. It just felt like Saturday, college football was on, leaves were blowing outside, and then um, the Halloween festivities began. Kids were getting dressed or not getting dressed, and all of those things. We went trick-or-treating. All of that happened, like, all in one day. Plus, I think we had an extra hour of sleep but I have kids, so we didn't have any extra sleep. And, uh, but it just felt that way. But for Halloween, what I love about it for kids is kids get to dress up. They get to have a new identity for a little bit of time. Right? They, they just do. And the younger ones are the best because they cannot wait to become that person or that character for a few hours. Uh, there's a friend of ours who their daughter dressed up like Rapunzel, and she refused to be called anything but Rapunzel all day long. She was only Rapunzel. You did not call her by her name. She was Rapunzel. And her dad was Flynn Rider, and that was all he would be known at all day long as was Flynn Rider. Um, and so kids loved that. They loved the, the chance to have a new identity for a little bit of time. Um, some of us also like to do that. I do it through fantasy football. Um, I like to pretend that I'm a commissioner of a football team, and then uh, my fake team plays fake games, and I win fake things. Uh, but I like it. But uh, it's a thing for us where this idea of a new identity, becoming something brand new, sometimes gets lost on us the older we get. I think we just get soured uh, from, from life. So Paul's going to speak to the church at Ephesus about the new identity that they have. And he's going to do it subtly in a way that you have to pay attention and you really have to put yourself in this situation to understand what happens. Too many times we just, we just read the black and white words, sometimes read on a page, and we just we neglect to put ourselves there. So I want you to do that. Put yourself in Ephesus. We're at a church that is in um, Asia Minor. People have come to this church from all kinds of different backgrounds. There are Gentiles, which means ethnic. So the non-Jews, and then you've got Jewish people, Israelite people, Hebrew people, and they've all come to know Jesus through different mediums, different ways, but they've come to know Jesus. 
This is not a book that everybody would have and would turn to a page in this letter. They would have it read to them at one time. And so there's someone before the church reading this letter to Gentile believers and Jewish believers. Paul has spent the first half of the letter talking about the doctrine of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that it is done, it is finished. Christ has won. He has risen from the grave. We have to, that's what he taught on for the first, or wrote about for the first half. And in that idea that we've done nothing to earn our salvation, God has chosen us. He has elected us. Before the beginning of time, he chose that we would be his, that we would have good works to walk in. And he spent a lot of time talking about the unity of the church. They need to be together. And last week, he began some of that discourse. And in this week, this passage, he's going to get a bit more practical about what it really looks like. And I love the power of the sovereignty of God that has us on this passage, um, on this day of this week in our country. Uh, so we just need to pay attention to it. Let's go to verse 17. We're going to move quickly. I don't have much time. We're going to move quickly through it. So buckle up. Ephesians 4, verse 17, Paul says, now, another transition statement, now this I say and testify in the Lord. The word testify means to agree with. So this I say and I agree with the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So he defines the Gentiles as being futile in their minds or having emptiness in their minds or there's no end in their mind, no strategy in their mind. Okay, so we read that we're like, oh, really good. What's the next verse? Don't forget, in the room or in the place hearing this letter are literal Gentiles in the room. And Paul says, don't be like the Gentiles. They're stupid, right? And there's Gentiles in the room saying, I'm, I'm right in front. Say it to my face, Paul. Say it to my face. That you tell me I'm stupid. Paul says, hey, don't walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And in the room, in the place, there are Gentiles. It would be as if Paul wrote the letter to us and said, hey, um, I testify to this in the Lord. You must no longer walk as Americans do because they're dumb. You say, we're not dumb. Do you know what we've invented? Do you know what we've done? Do you? No, no, no. It's as if, if he would say, hey, you must no longer walk as Georgians do. You must no longer walk as white people do. You must no longer walk as black people do. I'm getting into it early, so send the emails, but this is where we're going. You must no longer walk as Hispanics do. You must no longer walk as Republicans do. You must no longer walk as Democrats do. Do you understand what's happening? This is an offensive statement. To the Gentile, he's saying, you must no longer walk like a Gentile. This is what's happening in this letter a church at Ephesus, Paul is making a statement about their identity because here's what Paul knows. He knows that behavior is birthed from identity. Any behavior that we try to shift and move that isn't rooted in a change of identity will never last. What Paul is saying to the church at Ephesus, because he's already said this, you are no longer Gentiles. You have a new identity. You are now sons and daughters of God. You are Christians. You are believers. You are followers of Jesus. You're no longer known as Gentiles. You are now known as a son and a daughter of God. And what Paul is doing, I think on purpose, is trying to rise up that, whoa, the old identity still lingers in us. It still lingers. Those are some deep roots. And Paul is saying, hey, you must no longer walk as Gentiles. They are futile in their thinking. He's going to continue to badmouth Gentiles. But he's not referring to the current state of Gentiles. He's referring now to 
an old identity of a Gentile. You must no longer operate like Gentiles do. And I think if Paul were here today, he would say, as followers of Jesus at Sharon Church in 2020, November 1st, you must no longer walk as Americans do. And I love America. We are so blessed to be in this country. If you've traveled at all, you understand what a gift it is to be an American. But please understand, you and I had nothing to do with being an American. Just happened to be born here. But even then, Paul is saying, that's not your identity. That's not your identity. You're right-leaning, you're left-leaning, you are African-American, you are Caucasian, you are Hispanic, you are male, you are female. That's no longer your primary identity. And our behavior, though, is rooted in our identity. In the early 2000s, uh, there's a woman named Crystal Jones who worked for Teach for America. Uh, Teach for America was, is still an organization that goes into impoverished cities, particularly in the Title I schools, really uh, poor, um, sometimes dangerous schools, and they send these teachers in to teach, people with education degrees for the most part. And what they've done is they've said, hey, if you go teach at these schools for this amount of time, we will pay off your student loan, we will do such and such. And so they've recruited some people to go in uh, and to teach. And number, what they started to do was they had it all based on black and white, like law and strategy. So uh, they wanted to create better students in a Title I school, so they would create benchmarks for a teacher to go in and accomplish. And to accomplish those benchmarks, you have to do this sort of black and white teaching. But if any of you are teachers, you, you understand you can do all the right things and hit all the right check marks and it doesn't guarantee that your students will progress with you. Not even teachers, those of us who are parents understand we can give our kids benchmarks and, and check boxes and things to accomplish, but very rarely do they actually accomplish the things we ask them to accomplish. If you're a boss, you understand that, that it isn't enough just to tell people what to do. There's something underneath that. And so Crystal Jones comes in in 2003 and she um, gets on board at a Title I school in Atlanta. And what she recognizes is, hey, that old way, the law way, the black and white way isn't working. Something has to shift. Something has to change. So she gets a first grade class and this school is a Title I school. They didn't have a kindergarten. So many of her students, it's their first time in the education system at all. And she said, she said, I had two or three students only two or three students who could recognize kindergarten sight words. They're in first grade. And I also had some who could not even hold a pencil. So again, she's not, it's not the cream of the crop. Like these are just students who, who aren't nurtured at home, who aren't given what they need to succeed academically. And Crystal Jones comes in in 2003 and she sees her students out on the playground and what she recognizes is these first graders are drawn to third graders. They just watch the third graders because we all know that third graders are the coolest people in the world. And first graders, like they're not drawn to academic success, but what they see is these third graders who just, they're running faster. They catch everyone in tag. They can do the monkey bars without falling. Uh, they, can, they can jump off of the swings. They, the, the third graders, man, they are, they're the best of the best. And what she notices is third graders begin to not only like idolize them, but they begin to move towards third graders and they begin to behave like and dress like and talk like third graders. And so she has an idea. If this is what they want to be, Crystal Jones decided to appeal to who her students could be instead of who they used to be. 
So she created a culture in her classroom where she's not referring to them as the poor kids or the troublemakers or the violent kids or the ones from bad home lives. She, she doesn't refer to them as that anymore. She encourages them. She says, hey, by the end of the year, I will turn you into third graders. If you stick with me, I will turn you into third graders. Didn't give them a syllabus, didn't give them check marks. Just say, hey, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna be third graders by the end of the year. And then she does something revolutionary and she decides to call them scholars. Kids who can't hold a pencil, don't know their ABCs, can't tell you what a number is, can't recognize words like cat and dog, and she calls them scholars. And she only refers to them as scholars. So she would call them scholar and then their last name, Scholar Jones, Scholar Smith, Scholar Thompson. She only refers to them as scholars. And she defines to her class a scholar as someone who lives to learn and is good at it. Someone who lives to learn and is good at it. And so from that day forward, there were only scholars in her class. Every morning she would greet her scholars. She would say, good morning, scholars. What is a scholar? And in unison they say, a scholar is someone who lives to learn and is good at it. Whenever someone would come into her classroom, an administrator or a guest, and she would say, let me introduce you to my room full of scholars. Hey, Scholar Jones, why don't you tell our guest what a scholar is? And Scholar Jones would say, a scholar is someone who lives to learn and is good at it. She started to recognize that um, the kids who used to look for reasons not to come to school or reasons to get out of school or would look forward to recess now hated when they got pulled out of school. They hated it. They loved being a part of what was happening as a scholar. She said that by Halloween, she knew she had them hooked. By Halloween, she knew she had this first grade group of scholars hooked. And by March, their test scores had reached second grade levels. Kids who had never been in school before, couldn't hold a pencil, are now passing tests as a second grader when they should just be at the beginning of their second semester of first grade. So then she holds a graduation ceremony in her classroom, a group of first graders. She graduates them into second graders and then only refers to them as second grade scholars. Because her promise was, if you stick with me, I will make you third graders by the end of the year and you will do the monkey bars. You will run that fast. You will tag those people. So now they're second grade scholars. And by the end of the year, 90% of her first graders were reading at or above a third grade reading level in a Title I impoverished school. Couldn't hold a pencil, didn't know their ABCs when they started. Nine months later, are reading two grade levels above where they should be. Now, did that happen because she gave them a list of do's and don'ts and a lot of homework? No but she changed their identity. She referred to them as their new identity, as what they were becoming, not what they used to be. And if you don't hear anything else this morning, here's what you need. Jesus refers to us as, what, as to what we are becoming, not what we used to be. We are saints. We are sons and daughters of the Most High. We're not addicts. We're not adulterers. We're not murderers. We're not liars and thieves. We are sons and daughters of the Most High King. So Paul at this church at Ephesus is saying, hey, there's a shift here. Listen, there's a shift. There's a new culture in this church. You are no longer Gentiles. I'm gonna make you into third graders. I'm gonna make you into scholars. So he slowly and quietly shifts. And here's the thing that we can take from it, that we must never mistake 
our nationality, our ethnicity, our skin color, our heritage, our talents, our sins, our struggles, our addictions, our age, our body size for who we actually are. Those are no longer our primary identities. We are sons and daughters of God. Paul is now encouraging them to live into their new identity. The phrase he used uh, in Ephesians 4 verse 1 is that they would live worthy of the calling. So now he's got this group of scholars who are no longer first graders, they're third graders. They're no longer Gentiles, they're sons and daughters of God. He's gonna describe the Gentile, the old Gentile way in verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness, their hardness of heart. So he's just gonna lay it on thick, right? Like they, they've become dull. They are blind in their minds. Verse 19, they have become callous. They're hard-hearted. They're insensitive and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So here's the result of this Gentile way of living is that they have become callous. They become insensitive to conviction, insensitive to new things, insensitive to um, life-giving types of things. They've, they've grown callous. And because of that, they've given themselves up to sensuality. Here's the process. Hard heart, sensuality. Now we hear sensuality and we think sexual things. Sensuality just means whatever pleases and protects our flesh. That's what sensuality is. They've given themselves up to only pleasing and, and protecting the desires of their flesh. Sometimes that just means getting wealthy. Sometimes it means being pretty. Uh, sometimes it means having a good family. Sometimes it means having a good marriage. They, whatever they did, they devoted themselves to pleasing and protecting their flesh. And they became greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Notice, we don't start at impurity. We start at hardness of heart, callousness. But he's saying, here's the progress of what's happened. Then verse 20, he's gonna flip again with the word but, but that is not the way you learn Christ. That is not what Christ is. This is not what you learned about Jesus. Verse 21, well, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him. I love Paul's uh, sarcasm there. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just guessing. I'm assuming you've heard, and Paul knows he's taught. He sent teachers to teach. He knows what they've been taught as the truth is in Jesus. A uh, quick side note, it's the only time Paul refers to Jesus as just Jesus in this book, to, this letter to the church. It's the only time he refers to him as Jesus. It's usually Jesus Christ or the Lord or the Son or Messiah. The only time he refers to is humanity. And here's why, because he's going to now talk about our humanity. You saw Jesus. You've heard how Jesus lived. Gentiles don't do that. Gentiles don't live like Jesus. And now he's gonna explain what it means like to live like Jesus. We say this a lot. What would Jesus do? We, there's no evidence. Like, I don't, what do you mean, what would he do? Well, Paul's gonna tell us. Verse 22, here's what you learned about Jesus. Here's what you have to do. Here's how you were taught in him. You were taught to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So you were taught to put off your old self, which is corrupt through deceitful desires. Anytime we are working to please and protect or preserve the flesh, that is deceitful. You will never satisfy your flesh. That's a lie. Your flesh will never be pleased. It will never be protected. You will always want more. I always want more. Never satisfied. Never pleased. 
That's our flesh. We're always craving something. He's saying that was, that was deceitful. Those desires are deceitful. So first he says, you gotta put off your old self. Secondly, in verse 23, uh, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. The word renewed means to be made new again or to be made again, to be born again. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. He doesn't speak about just your mind, but the spirit of your mind. Your mind uh, can know what and how, but the spirit of your mind understands why. The mind can understand what and how, but it's the spirit of your mind that understands why. And Paul is saying, you don't need a new what, you don't need a new how, you need a new why. You need a new why. In the spirit of your mind, you need to be made new. Verse 24, and then finally, to put on the new self, the new humanity, the new man, the new identity, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So here Paul gives us three things that have to happen for transformation in the life of the believer. Those of you who work with middle schoolers or late elementary age, or you have those children living in your home, um, you understand that this particular demographic uh, doesn't quite understand putting off the old. Uh, they're not a fan of showers. They aren't a fan of clean clothes. Um, our, our son at one point in the beginning of, of this stage for him told us that he smelled like onions and peppers, like a fajita, I guess, and he was very proud to finally smell like a fajita. Um, but what, what's happened is that group would take a fajita smell and then spray Axe body spray on themselves and would just become like an Axe fajita spray. And it's just, it doesn't do anything. And every, your car smells, their gym bag, everything smells forever, right? That's, that's what happens. Uh, in the very same way, if, if there's a, a particular odor in your house from a pet or from a child or from cooking, burning popcorn, whatever it is, and you get out the Febreze or air spray and then you spray vanilla in your house, you don't have a vanilla smelling house. You have a vanilla dog urine smelling house because you haven't gotten the old out. Does that make sense? So there's three things that have to happen for us in the life of a believer that I'm not sure we do all three well. I don't know that we understand that all three have to happen. And this is where God is... is, is um, He's opposed to earning, but he's not opposed to effort. Like we have to engage here. So the first thing we have to do is put off the old self, the old identity. We have to get rid of it. It's Psalm 139, right? It's, it's examine my heart, oh God, bring to mind anything that is unbecoming, that's not uh, pure. Get rid of the old. So we have to do the work of examination, and this is what's called confession. If we don't confess, uh, we're just putting lipstick on a pig to steal a colloquial phrase. That's all we're doing. If we don't confess, if we don't get rid, all we're doing is spraying vanilla over the dog urine in our hearts. We've got to get rid of it. We've got we to gotta confess. It's a gift of confession. Uh, the Lord operates not, not like, a, he operates like a surgeon with a scalpel, not a construction worker with a sledgehammer. He's gonna to continue to poke and prod and dig what's underneath. And if you're like me, I'm fine with that to a certain level of my epidermis, but the lower he gets, the worse it feels, and I want him to stop. He's gotta get it out. We've gotta get it out. So first, we've gotta put off our old self, because that belongs to our old identity, not our new one. That belongs to our Gentile identity. That belongs to our Republican, Democrat identity. That belongs to our ethnicity identity, not our new one as sons and daughters of God. Secondly, we have to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. That has to happen next. We've gotta be renewed in the spirit of our mind. Again, we are not made new through knowledge. We are made new. We are transformed in understanding or the why. 
Many of us have plenty of knowledge, but I'm not sure that it's our spirit of our mind has been renewed. This is what's called repentance. It's a change of your mindset. That's repentance. Romans 12, Paul says, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be renewed in your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then finally, we have to put on the new self. We can't just take off the old clothes and then take a shower and then go out in the world. We're missing something, aren't we? In most places, you would be missing something. We gotta put on the new clothes. We gotta put on the clean stuff. You can't just put a clean sweatshirt on over dirty clothes and, and think that does anything. We, we have to be, uh, take off the old, be cleansed, and then put on the new. Now, I don't know where you fall in that per personally, like which of those three, maybe you've missed a step or you haven't gone back to, but we're gonna need all three and they're gonna have to be in order. So Paul's gonna give us now um, particular examples of how this plays itself out. It's always interpersonal. Again, he's, he's talking about unity in the church and he's saying your old identity Gentiles was dull. It was dark and it doesn't work anymore. You have a new identity. So verse 25 begins with the word therefore. So because of that, because of these three things, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. The first thing Paul's going to get at in speaking of our old identity is our old identity lies and deceives each other. We do. Because we're trying to please and protect the flesh. And the only way to preserve this identity that I've projected to you is to actually lie about it. The old identity is lies and deceives, but the new identity speaks truth. The new identity is truth-telling. The old way of life was lying and deceit. The new way of life is telling truth. And that does mean about, hey, when you're asked questions, tell the truth, that obviously. I think it also refers to um, speaking truth things to each other, calling each other out. But he doesn't just give us old and new. He gives us a new mindset. Did you pick up on it in verse 25? For or because we are members one of another. If you're religious or you've grown up in the church, you understand lying is bad, telling the truth is good. But I'm not sure we understand why that's so important in the body of Christ. You wanna know why it's important that we tell the truth? Because we are committed to each other. We belong to each other. We are a body. And when one part suffers, the rest of the body suffers with it. I cannot tell a lie in my life and it not affect my wife. Deceit in my heart, in my life, that is then communicated affects my kids, it affects my wife, it affects our church. And you, as part of the body of Christ, are in the exact same position. Lying and deceit doesn't just affect you, but it affects everyone else. When you hit your finger with a hammer, the rest of your body feels it. It's all connected. But I think more important than that is this. Um, this is kind of marriage language. We are committed to each other. So the reason why I don't have to lie, if our church is functioning properly, the reason why I am not drawn to lying and deceit is because I know I can tell you the truth and you're not going anywhere. You're with me, you're for me. The mark of a true church is that people are safe to confess because they know that the other people are committed to them. It's why your finger doesn't lie to your body when you hit it with a hammer. The body's not going anywhere. So it can tell the truth. 
So church, this is where we've got to do some work as the capital C church. We have got to be better about communicating, I am for you, I love you, I'm not going anywhere. Confess. Doesn't change us. Doesn't change that I love you. Doesn't change that I'm for you. Don't lie to me. Tell me the truth. So because we understand that we are committed to each other, we don't lie anymore. We tell the truth. And we are welcome to tell the truth. Secondly, verse 26, Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, Paul doesn't say, don't be angry. Because there's people involved. You will get angry. It's, anger is actually a healthy emotion that tells us there's injustice somewhere. Anger is not sinful, but what we do with it. So he says, be angry, but do not sin. Our old identity was rooted in reactive emotion. I'm angry, you're gonna pay for it. I'm angry, I'm gonna tell you all about it. You're, I'm angry, you owe me something. Our old identity was reactive emotion. New identity doesn't let the sun go down on their anger, but it means this. It means that you confront it in the daylight. To not let the sun go down on your anger means that you bring the anger to the light. You don't let the darkness sink into it. So we bring it to the light. So for those of you who are highly confrontational, this is not permission for you to verbally vomit on whoever is next to you at the grocery store. It's not permission for you to vent at your spouse because they didn't take the trash out in the timely manner that you wanted them to. What it means is, bring your anger up. Where's it coming from? What's underneath it? Confront the cause of your anger. And sometimes the cause of your anger is that somebody hurt you and you have to confront them. What's the new mindset? Well, because we understand that unresolved anger lets the enemy in. An opportunity is a military term, but it also means when someone would open the door and somebody would sneak their foot in to hold it open, that somebody who hasn't paid can come in. That's what it means. Where there's unresolved anger in our hearts, the devil has access to your family, to your marriage, to your kids, and to your church. And if we're members of one another, we don't want the enemy in. You don't leave your door open in the middle of the night. You don't leave your door open when you go on vacation. Why? You don't want the enemy into your home. Why do we allow the door to be open to our marriages? Why do we allow the door to be open to our church? Because of unresolved, undealt with anger. Be angry, but do not sin. The day of anger should be the day of reconciliation. The old identity lets anger simmer and fester. The old identity hides anger. The old identity explodes in anger. The new identity confronts it, but not to be, made, not to be um, proven right, but to be made right. Again, anger is there because it reveals there's been injustice. So then fight for justice, reconciliation. And before the sun goes down, deal with it. Verse 28, Paul's gonna continue. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Uh, theft was not widely condemned in this culture. It was kind of a necessary evil. So this is culturally challenging what Paul is saying. The old identity steals. Old identity takes what does not belong to you. 
Now, most of us in the room understand to steal something is bad. You should pay for it. Um, but let me just say this to you. Are you stealing money from your work because you're not actually working hard when you're on the clock? Are you stealing from your marriage? Are you stealing from your kids because you're not actually engaged? Let a thief no longer steal. Then the word is labor, which means like sweat-inducing kind of work. Christians should be the hardest workers in the workplace. You should be known for your work ethic, not for your drive to accomplish, not to get to the top, but man, when you're there, you should be, we should be the most present people in the building. This is sweat-inducing labor. Let him labor, then this word honest work. Honest meaning profitable for the benefit of others. Doing work that contributes. The old identity takes what doesn't belong to us, and the new identity contributes to the community around us. That's what it means. The Gentile way, darkened in your understanding, futile in your thinking, just takes the new identity gives, it contributes. But for what reason? So that you can get a promotion, that you can get a nameplate, that you could put it on your resume? No, that's the old way. That's stealing. For what reason? That we could share with anyone in need, that we might be generous. Because thieves are not generous. I don't care what you've, uh, what you've read about Robin Hood. Thieves are not generous. Generous people are the ones that work and contribute. Then they are generous. So why do we work hard? Why do we no longer steal? Because we want to help. We want to provide. Because we're members of one another. We don't want the enemy in. So how do we help? Finally, uh, verse 29, let no corrupting, this word can mean rotten talk, come out of your mouths, but only such is as good for the building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Any good parent has used the beginning of verse 29 to tell your kids not to cuss. Don't say those words. Don't say poop. That's corrupting talk. We don't say that at the dinner table. Don't let corrupting talk. So this word corrupting uh, means death-inducing, destructive leading to death kinds of words, rotten words. It's the same way that um, if you put a rotten apple in with a bunch of apples, it will rot the entire bunch. Let no corrupting, unwholesome, some of your translations say, rotten, destructive, death-inducing words come out of your mouth. But only such is a good for building up. As it fits the occasion, that means don't flatter. Make it fit. As fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So our old identity speaks destructive, death-inducing words. Words that uh, make people shrivel up. Words that make people feel powerless. Words that attack people's character. Words that are attacking and meant to kill. That's the old mindset identity. The new identity speaks constructive, life-giving words towards one another. And Why? But that it may give grace, that word is a gift, that it may be a gift to those who hear. So please hear me on this. Your words, my words, our words matter. Words matter. The tongue has the power of life and death. Your words matter. Now, Paul is speaking of saying words. It should not come out of our mouths. I would say it shouldn't come out of your fingertips either. We should not be people who use words to create death. We are people in our new identity. We are people who use our words to bring life. 
And we bring life to politics. We bring life to racial tension. We bring life to riots. We don't speak words that lead to death because our words matter. Our words matter. Go to any counselor's office and ask him why people lay on his couch because somebody said something. Somebody created a culture based on their words that made them feel some way. Our words matter. And as followers of Jesus, we don't have the right to spout off and to rant because that's not life-giving. That's meant to tear down. For some of us, we need to go back through our social media feeds and delete some stuff. Whatever you feel about a political party or a particular stance on coronavirus or on politics or on the wall or whatever it is, as followers, that was our old identity. Our old identity takes our political leanings and we try to kill the other side. Our new identity as citizens of heaven and children of, of the king, we use our words to build life. So use your words as a gift and not a curse. Verse 30, Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Because you know what grieves the Holy Spirit of God? What we just read. What grieves the Holy Spirit of God is lying, sinful anger, corrupting talk. It grieves the Holy Spirit. So this word grieve, this is uh, intimate kind of language. So picture this, inside of your soul um, is a married couple and your own spirit is one spouse and the Holy Spirit is another spouse and the Holy Spirit is moving in and the Holy, she has, okay, he, the Holy Spirit has um, furniture and they wanna rearrange the bachelor pad, right? And the Holy Spirit moves in and that's what the Holy Spirit is going to do. But at some point, your spirit grieves, saddens, breaks the heart of the Holy Spirit. And for those of you who are married, you understand this. When you break the heart of your spouse, things are not right at home. There's tension. There's no joy. There's forced smiles. There is um, uh, constructed conversation around the dinner table about things that don't actually matter. When we grieve the Holy Spirit, the home that is his, where our spirit and his spirit reside, there is tension that has to be resolved and it's a gift, conviction of knowing you grieve the Holy Spirit is a gift. When you feel that tension, it's evidence that you have been sealed by God. That's what he's saying. And when that happens, we have a decision to make. Do we confront what grieves the Holy Spirit in our souls? Or do we, like we are prone to do, uh, do we flatter, do we pretend, or do we just avoid it altogether? And when you avoid the grieving of the Holy Spirit, you become what Paul would say is calloused in your heart. So please hear me. I love you in this way this morning. If you don't feel the conviction of the Lord over the way that you treat people, uh, the things that you post, the things that you say, the lies that you tell, the life that you live that's against the life of God, two things have to, one of two things is true. One, you don't know Jesus. Or secondly, you've grieved the Holy Spirit and you've been avoiding it for some time. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. It takes the joy out of following him. It makes it rote and mundane and boring and dull. And you feel like you're not being satisfied. Where'd the passion go? You used to love me. That's what happens when you grieve the Holy Spirit. 
So then verse 31, Paul's just gonna let it go at this point. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. It's like, I'm, I'm done with the thing. Here's all the words. Just get rid of all of it. Bitterness is, a, is a, a, an unresolved feeling. It's, it's unresolved bitterness. It just grows in our hearts. Wrath is a passion. It's a reactive passion. Paul's using this to, to build. You, you have bitterness first. That creates this reactive emotional passion, which creates anger. Anger is wrath for the sake of punishment. You want someone to pay for it. That's what this anger word means. Clamor means that you incite a riot. You get as many voices as you can on your side, and you post about it. You get them on your side. You talk about it. You only get in this echo chamber of hearing people who say the same things that you say. Slander is to go after someone's character, to attack their character. Please, oh, hear me in this. I don't care who the political candidates are. We have no business going after their character. Because if somebody followed you around for 40 years, would they not find something about you? It's unbecoming of a child of God to slander. And then what it results in, Paul says in verse 31, is malice. You want to know what malice is? Malice is the desire for someone to be injured. Paul says, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Verse 32, instead, be kind to one another. And I know that sounds childish, but it's such a command over and over. Be kind. Consider one another. Tender-hearted. Not, not calloused in your heart, but tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So Paul gives us the old, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. And he gives us the new, right? The new identity is kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. And then he gives us the why, the new mindset. Here's the new mindset. Christ forgave you. God forgave you. Why do we not slander? Why do we not uh, wish for malice? Why do we not clamor? Why not? Because God forgave you. Our new identity is, is rooted in the cross of Jesus. Sometimes we get so far away from that moment of salvation, that growth of sanctification, that we forget that when Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't just for the Democrats. It wasn't just for the Republicans. It was for you too. He had to die because of your sin. He had to die because of my sin. There is no pride at the foot of the cross. There is no malice at the foot of the cross. We are all one. We are all broken. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. I don't care what your color, your creed, your political party, your nationality, we are all on even ground at the foot of the cross of Jesus. And that's where our new identity is birthed. That's where we are born again. That's our new name. So we must no longer walk as the Gentiles do because we are sons and daughters of the Most High King. And there's no slander in the king's heart. There's no malice in the king's heart. There's no anger. Um, there's not that in the king's heart. As children of the king, we must live worthy of our calling. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the good news of the gospel. I thank you that it doesn't leave us how we are, that you love us enough to meet us there and then you want us to become more into who you've called us to be. And that when you call us yours, you call us by name. But even through the death and resurrection of your son, God, you don't see us in our old way. You see us in our new identity. And would you just help us, give us the courage to walk in it, like to let us actually enjoy being yours. 
pray that we are a church who is known in our new identity, a people who speak words of life, not words of death, people who tell the truth because we're not going anywhere, a church that brings glory to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.